Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Uh, our, our speaker this evening is the Assistant Director at the Liturgical Institute of the University of St. Mary of the Lake. He holds a Bachelor's in History of Art from Yale University and a Ph.D. in Architectural History from the University of Virginia, where he consecrate, concentrated his research on the study of ecclesiastical architecture of the 19th and 20th centuries. Dr. McNamara is the author of Heavenly City, the Architectural Tradition of Catholic Chicago, uh, Catholic Church Architecture and the Spirit of the Liturgy, and his latest work, How to Read Churches, a Crash Course in Christian Architecture. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Dennis McNamara. Well, it's my great pleasure to be back. I was here, I guess, about a year and a half ago for a talk on architecture. And then when Deacon Sabatino called a few months ago, said, we're talking about beauty, anything you can say about that? And I said, yes, because I teach a course called Sacramental Aesthetics. And I graduated from the University of Virginia. Any, any Wahoos in the room? Yeah, a few, few people? Okay, maybe you can explain to me what's been happening with the president. And I, I have no idea. But in any case, straightforward, modernist, architectural, historical method. It was Gothic, then it was Renaissance, then it was Baroque, then it was something else, then it was something else. And it was all facts. Pointed arches, round arches, swirly columns, straight columns, no columns, concrete, marble, no concrete, whatever it happened to be. And then I came to realize nobody ever asked the question, why? Oh, it was because some rich person had money or somebody wanted to memorialize something. But I said, well, what's the, what's the so what behind that? Well, because it's, you know, this, that, the other thing. Well, what? So what? So what? The students used to get mad at me because I used to go, so what? So what? So what? And eventually we had to get back to the point where someone said, so that the glory of God can be revealed in the matter of this world, in the stuff of this world. And that is what we call beauty. And that is the starting point uh, right now. And I think a lot of people don't know what, if you could get the lights, please. No, people don't know what beauty is. If you ask people what beauty is, you go to a museum and you see some crumbled up piece of aluminum in the corner, you know, and the Curator says some long, very smart-sounding thing about Derrida and deconstruction, and we're bound to chaos. And you say, so what, right? I, I don't know. Well, maybe I'm stupid. I remember the day on my doctoral studies where I said, I don't have to believe that anymore because I know that's not true. There is something about all these curators telling me that something ridiculous is something extraordinary. If you feel that way, trust your instincts because usually ridiculous is ridiculous. And I hope today when you walk out of here, you'll say, I have a theological definition of beauty and I will be able to interpret anything I see. So what we're going to do today, you know, feel free to just jump in. I like to go back and forth and say, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? When you show something on the screen. And so I know Deacon Sabatino runs a tight ship here. You know, he cracks the whip and, you know, no more than one breath for your questions and all that stuff. 
but I'm going to let you off the leash a little bit, sorry, Deacon, uh, to just answer these questions if they, if they come up. I did a Google search, most beautiful woman in the world, and this is what came up. <laughs> this is not what came up. Mm, right, so does Google have any idea what beauty is? This is also what did not come up in most beautiful woman in the world. And so right away, boom, we have people who, um, who stimulate, say, the lower base instincts of our bodies and minds, and we say, that's the height. Those things which ask us to be contemplative, well, we don't pay attention to those, right? The whole culture has been Hollywoodized or red carpetized. And so let's start to think about this. You know, which one of these is more beautiful? And by what criteria do you decide? And what's the process? This is, you know, well, um, Las Vegas on the right. It's actually PG-rated before, but you never know who's going to come to one of these things. So uh, she's not naked under there, I promise. So what is beauty? This is a hard question, but it's got a very simple answer. Is it a politically incorrect word? When I was in graduate school, you couldn't use the words masterpiece anymore because that presumed that something was better than something else. You couldn't use the word beauty in my graduate seminars at the university. Mr. Jefferson's University, because nobody knew what it was, and it was about you know, people uh, oppressing other people with their preconceived notions of beauty. So it is a very politically incorrect word. Is this just in the realm of Martha Stewart, right? Just you know, polite conversation, have your neighbors come over and, and get a nice sugar cookie or whatever it happens to be. Is this just a luxury for affluent people? Because people say, oh, well, you know, rich people, they can afford marble and leather sofas and all that stuff. What about the poor people? They should have concrete bunkers like the rich people, too. Wait, something's not right there, okay? <laughs> is it in the eye of the beholder and therefore completely subjective? This is the fundamental problem of our time when this thing here, this podium, which is an object, has an objective quality of podiumness. But if I can't trust my senses or my perception or I'm in a dream or I'm drug-induced or whatever you want to say that I don't know for sure if this is a podium or not, and therefore we can't trust our sense experience of the objective reality of this podium, you might as well just pack it in and drive yourself into the ocean, right? Because nothing has meaning anymore. So we'll have to talk about that too. And can we speak of objective beauty? Here's the starting uh, point right now. Beauty is the clear revelation of the ontological reality of a thing. This I call the O word. My students say, you're always using the O word on us. Well, here it is, the O word. What is ontological? It means ontology is the study of being. It's the study of the nature of a thing. The existence or reality is known in the mind of God. So God knows what a thing is supposed to be. And you can make one that corresponds one-to-one -one to what God knows it is, or you can make it correspond less fully. And so a dog should have dogness. This is the ness of things. This is not Loch Ness Monster. This is the hyphen ness of things. The liturgy with liturginess. Christ with Christness. Church building with church buildingness. But what does this presuppose then? What is church buildingness? Which means you have to know what it is, and then how do you know what it is? Well, you have scripture, you have revelation, you have history, you have natural theology, you have all of these things. But hopefully, the Holy Spirit will enlighten your mind so that you will know as God knows and then you can start to make something that's beautiful because it corresponds to the mind of God. So if you want to think of this with a little uh, diagram, this dotted line here with the red X's, this is the you are here mark in the, uh, in the world. And all the heavenly and eternal realities are in our heavenly future. 
which is why we're a pilgrim church. We're on our way to that heavenly future. And we have all these attempts on earth, using the stuff of the earth to manifest those heavenly things. So the Eucharist, of course, is the perfect and prime example. It starts out as wheat and comes back as the body of Christ. Wine starts out as fermented grape juice, comes back as the blood of Christ. But think of a wooden statue in a church somewhere. It was a tree. And they cut down the tree, and its liturgical end, its liturgical goal, its telos, as they say, was to be carved into a statue of an angel so that we could know what angels look like. And then we can actually encounter a sacramental image of an angel. And if it looks like a dog, it's not a very good angel, right? So you have to ask, what's angelness? And then you start to make beautiful uh, angels. So is this a Redskins fan? How do you know? He's got a cheese head on, right? Well, he could be a liar, right, and be a Redskins fan. But you see, the externals reveal the otherwise invisible, unknowable realities of what is going on here. Is this a beautiful Redskins fan? Is it a beautiful Green Bay fan? Well, how do you know, right? You see, the exterior corresponds to how God understands a Green Bay fan, uh, and they have a pretty close correspondence. Now, this is ridiculous, but this is how you know uh, if a thing is beautiful. It corresponds to its ontological reality. So which one of these is a more beautiful church, on the left or the right? Well, I don't know. Knowing this crowd, I don't know. (laughs) But, you know, I run into people all the time. They're like, when I was a kid, the nun hit me with a stick in front of a statue of Mary, and I hate statues of Mary because the nun was mean, and I cried And now I hate this. I hate, hate, hate pre-Vatican II stuff. But see, that's an emotional response to an object. That's not the objective reality of the thing. And so beauty is in the object. It's not in the mind of uh, the person. What if that one on the right were a concert hall? Would it be a pretty good concert hall? Is it a pretty good church? Mm, See, then you have to ask the question. Ontologically, what is it? Is it a concert hall? Pretty good. The church, I don't know, it doesn't seem to correspond too well, right? And everybody's been to a church that doesn't look like a church. I've heard, especially in this diocese, you have a lot of churches that don't look like churches. And what do people say? That church looks like a gym, pizza hut, theater in the round, right? But you see what they're doing is substituting other ontological categories for what the church is supposed to be. And then you say, well, the sign says church, but it looks like a pizza hut. And I've been to a lot of churches, and I've never seen one that looks like that before. And instead of just going in and resting in the beauty of heaven being revealed to you sacramentally, you have to say, what is this place? And so instead of being relieved of your inability to understand because of the fall, you are actually dragged down into it. And that's one of the things that beauty does. It relieves us from the necessity to figure out what things are. Okay, which one of these reveals churchness more than the other? based on the building itself. Not the big cross in front of it, but the building itself. It's kind of hard to know, right? The architecture doesn't tell you much. The big cross substitutes for the architecture being kind of mute, right? And so sometimes people say, well, as long as there's a life-size crucifix in the church, then I know it's Joseph there, Mary there, and a big crucifix in the middle, then it's a Catholic church. Well, that's a start, but the architecture itself can have some meaning. Which one of these looks more like a church? Where's the big cross? Well, there's no big cross. There's no little cross. There's no cross at all. You see how the architecture itself looks churchly based on a whole series of conventions. 
And architecture is like language. It speaks. And if you decide that you're not going to say words that convey traditional ideas because that's old-fashioned and that's pre-Vatican II or that's pre-Enlightenment or whatever it happens to be, then you start to make buildings that are kind of, of mute. Okay. <laughs> is this a beautiful church? <laughs> is this a beautiful pizza hut? Yeah, you see, ontological category makes all the difference because you have to say, what is it? And then, now that I know what it is, does the external built thing correspond to that invisible reality in my mind? This is why Pope John Paul was always writing about the dignity of the human person, right? He had been through the Nazis, he had been through the Stalinists. And if you don't define the human person properly, then all kinds of things can happen, as we know in our own, in our own culture. And so, in architecture, what is the thing, and then does the architecture match it? Okay, here's a test. If I gave you a pencil and said, please draw a procyon lotor, how would you begin? <laughs> Any biologists in the room know what a procyon lotor is? Well, what's the question you have to ask yourself? What is it, right? So if you're going to make a good one, you better know what it is. This is what it is. It's a raccoon. You probably have them all over your trash cans around here. So assessing beauty presumes knowledge of what the thing is and therefore what should be. And so if we think a church is a meeting hall, we're going to build meeting halls. If we think a church is the living room of God, as you heard back in the 80s a lot, then you're going to build the living room of God. If you think the church is the sacramental image of the heavenly banqueting feast of the Lamb, well, then it's going to look like that. And so theology, what you know about a thing, determines how you do it. What does this elephant on the right reveal about Procyon Lotor? Not too much, but a little more than a rock would, right? It's got four legs and eyes and ears, and so it's got more in common with a raccoon than a rock, but not very much. It's not a good raccoon, although it's a pretty good elephant. It's a beautiful elephant, not a beautiful raccoon. Is this a beautiful cathedral mural? Well, it's a cathedral, I'll tell you. It isn't a cathedral. <laughs> I should say, it's a beautiful mural. Now, did you, have a, did you have an emotive response or did you have an intellectual response? What do you know about what a mural in the back of a church should look like? Should it have a picture of George Washington on the throne? No, it has Jesus at the center, right? Now, how come? Well, the worship on earth, as all our Eastern right folks here will know especially well, is a sacramental presentation of the liturgy of heaven being made knowable to the eyes and the ears and the nose with the incense and everything. And so when you paint a mural in a church, you have to say, what is the liturgy of heaven like? And therefore, does this correspond well to it? And if you read the book of Revelation, you see it describes one seated on the throne surrounded by the white-robed multitudes and the angels and the saints and so on. So you have to start to say, what is the nature of a mural? Is to reveal the heavenly liturgy. What's the heavenly liturgy? And then, is it done well? You see how easy this is? What is it? And therefore, does that correspond? That's it. So if someone says, well, this is a beautiful tree, and it's a crumpled up piece of aluminum foil, you say, no, it's not. No matter how many theories the art people come up with, and the art museums make museums full of, of stuff, you have to ask a, is it that? And A, B, is it worth doing? Because they might say, well, this crumpled up piece of aluminum foil represents the chaos of modern society. Well, maybe, but is that worth looking at? I mean, we know. We don't have to be taught there's chaos all around us. We see it every minute of the day. Okay, is this a beautiful image of Christ? This is called My Christ by an 1897 artist. 
Is it a beautiful image of Satan? Hmm. See, he's, this artist, anti-Christian, and he said, this black circle, which his hair was, is an apocalyptic black moon, a sort of demonic halo that creates destruction and brings ruin. This is the Antichrist, and his Christ is the Antichrist, because that's what he's about. Now, if you go to an art museum, they say, well, this represents the emotional condition of the artist. That's true, right? There's a pretty good one-to-one -one correspondence between that image and the emotional condition of the artist. But that's not the same as being beautiful in a liturgical context. So to understand it, you have to know what is it, and then is it worth doing? Okay, which one of these is more beautiful? These are the drawings for a mosaic that was going to be, uh, that was made, in fact. The Virgin Mary, Our Lady of Sorrows. One on the right, they're both pretty good. Well, the artist drew this one first, and I said, well, you know, it looks a bit Walt Disney, it looks a bit too earthbound. I said, we're going to show the Virgin Mary, even Our Lady of Sorrows, she's going to have a heavenly condition. And so there's a whole tradition in iconography that represents saints not as they existed on earth. You know, everybody likes to talk about the historical Jesus or what did the Virgin Mary really wear, you know, what did she have for lunch, all that sort of stuff. The question is, what is the truth of the Virgin Mary as she exists in heaven now? And then you say, which one of these better reveals that to us? And then you can start to talk about beauty. How about these two, which one's more beautiful? The one on the right, I'm giving you easy softball answers here, but if you had to give an answer, I mean, if, if somebody came up to you and said, defend that position, what would you have to say? What would you say? Well, Mary's not a two-dimensional black and white uh, drawing. She's not a two-dimensional mosaic drawing either, but heaven is described as being jewel-like, radiant, golden, and so this one has more correspondence to the heavenly realities than the one on the left. See how easy that is? What is it supposed to be? Does that thing do it? If it does, it's more beautiful than one that doesn't. That's it. We're not over yet, but we could be. We could be. Okay, so what's the reason to know any of this? Beauty is that about the truth which we find attractive, that which makes us delight in knowing the truth. So if you've ever heard a boring homily that was really good in its content, oh yeah, if I'll, maybe I'll read that later, right? As opposed to someone who's so passionately convinced about the role of Christ that you want to like get up and clap. Have you ever had a priest give a homily where you wanted to clap or you did clap in the middle of it? They were both true, right? One boring, one not. But one presents the truth in a way that's delightful. And therefore, beauty is related to revelation because when a thing is presented beautiful, it rings true and it pleases the mind and the soul. And so, of course, people like it. And the liturgy presents to us the truth about our relationship to God. If it has an attractive power, that is beauty, that makes it easier and more delightful for people to move their will toward the good. So, if you're standing here and there's something ugly over there and something beautiful over there, well, let's see, the birthday cake's going to be over there and no birthday cake over there later. <laughs> You pick up your feet and you walk to the cake, right? Because there's something attractive about that. And that makes it easier to move your will toward that. Does anybody know theologically what the definition of a movement of the will toward the good is from St. Augustine? Starts with L, sounds like of. Love, right? St. <laughs> Augustine says love is a movement of the will toward the good. Or the movement of the will toward the good is love. So beauty inspires love in us. And that is really important. You want people to show up to Mass? Make it beautiful because they will love it. 
right? Make it true because they will love it. This is how you move the will toward the good. We all know how hard it is to get up in the morning and do all these things, but the more beautiful it is, the easier it will be. So in order to make or uh, to know how to make or do anything beautiful, we need to find out what is true about it. And this requires intellectual inquiry, yet is related to the affect or the emotional response. Because you see something beautiful, you go, wow. Right? I used to give tours at the University of Virginia all the time, and we'd go up to the dome room of the rotunda, and all the kids would be following me up the stairs, and they'd be yelling and screaming and pushing each other down the stairs and up the stairs. And then they'd come up to the dome room, and they would shut up, and they'd look at that dome. And they didn't know the first thing about Jefferson and neoclassicism, but they knew something really cool just happened, and they just walked into this room. So there's an emotive response. But then you have to test it intellectually. Does it make sense? Because you can be convinced emotionally of all kinds of bad things, but it has to be true. So let's see what we can say about this. I want to talk a bit about the Thomistic approach to beauty, which is a realist approach, which is the beauty is in the object, which is kind of strange, because we think the beauty is what we think of it, but a, a realist approach is beauty is in the object. And my uh, teacher at UVA, Bill Westfall, used to say, if a person looks at a beautiful object and doesn't understand that it's beautiful, then that person and not the object is deficient. It's nice, not nice to call somebody deficient, but if you look at something beautiful and you're six and your mother's dragging you through the Louvre and you're like, oh, another painting, Dad, why are you doing right? The kid is deficient. They don't know how to appreciate something beautiful. But the object has not changed, right? So it's in the object, but the perceiver has something to do with it. And so the perceiver is really to be beautiful. Uh, if you have a blue car, you can't have a blue car unless you have a car, right? The blueness presupposes there's a car to be blue. And to be is to be beautiful. So all that has being has beauty to some degree, which is interesting, because we tend to think ugly or beautiful. That's it. A slug versus a gazelle. Which, are they both beautiful, right? How about the devil? Is there any beauty in the devil? Well, the, the devil has will and intellect and all these gifts. He's not using them well, but there's beauty in the devil. It's just a low uh, participation in it. And the degree of beauty is in proportion to its perfection of being. Because people will say, well, I like uh, a slug and I like a gazelle. You know, they're all the same, right? Cezanne painted pictures of apples. Oh, there's more beauty in this apple than there is in some 19th century painting of Christ. This is what you hear the art critics say a lot. Well, an apple, the most beautiful apple in the world, will be always less beautiful than the least beautiful person, right? Because it's a whole different category. A person has a possibility of perfection of being that an apple will never have. Um, and though beauty is in the object, it requires a perceived. So, things are beautiful, yet beauty is only revealed when perceived. So here's the question. Is a beautiful object beautiful when no one is looking at it? <laughs> if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's there to hear it, is it beautiful when no one's looking at it? How come? Because, well, it is, right? Well, because, first of all, God's always perceiving, right? So there's never a thing that's not perceived. But beauty is an intrinsic constituent of things. It's in the object, and it has a relation to the subject, which is us. So, think of the woman who had the non-hitter with the stick. I'm, I'm not just making that up. Some woman told me that once. And so, she said, you kids don't know. I was younger then. She said, you kids don't know anything about what it was like before the council. Ah, blah, blah, right. So, is it in the eye of the beholder? I'm getting some no. Well, beauty's in the object, but the perceiver's perception is important. So, let's talk about that. Here's some complicated sounding theories of beauty. The power of reality to please in being uh, contemplated. 
So when a thing is presented to you, what's real, what's true, what God knows about it, when you contemplate it, you enjoy it. It gives a joy in knowing, a superabounding joy because of the object known. It's not just I know this is a podium, but I know something, if it's a really beautiful podium, more than I would know otherwise. I delight in this revelation of the mind of God, and it delights the soul and, ex and exalts the soul, and it reveals the inmost knowledge of its ontological reality. A flash of the divine mind, and that's interesting, because how often do you get a flash of the divine mind? It's not something you can just you know, snap your fingers and boom, there it is. But when you see something beautiful, what you're experiencing is something that's closer to the way that God understands it. And this is why it matters what things look like, because you want to convince people of the nature of God. And where is beauty perceived? In the mind. It's in the mind. It's not primarily in the emotions. It's an object of intelligence, and what knows is the mind, and therefore it's open to intellectual inquiry. If you've ever had any of those arguments over Thanksgiving dinner table, what do they say? It was the good hostess say, don't let your guests talk about religion or politics, right? Because fight, 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 fight. But at least you can have intellectual inquiry. Could you imagine having an argument about which is the best color, blue or green? I like blue. I like green. You're a jerk. No, you're a jerk, right? That's all you can do. But if you can talk about the nature of something, then you can start to have intellectual inquiry. So how does that compare to I like it? Well, I like old-fashioned stuff, okay. I like modern stuff, so what? That's not an argument. How about I like things that are theologically appropriate? So here's a question. Is a poorly designed building made of shoddy materials and has no altar suitable for a new cathedral? No. How come? It's shot. No, there's a lot of shoddy buildings out there. What's the, what happened in your brain? You said, I know what a cathedral is. It's important. So it shouldn't be shoddy. It's permanent. It shouldn't be shoddy. And a cathedral is a church, and a church is supposed to have an altar. Maybe you didn't you know, catalog each one of those little thoughts, but that's what happened. All your neurons started firing. And that's an intellectual inquiry into the nature of beauty. And the natural sight of beauty is the intelligible world, and the mind is made to delight in the beautiful, which is why we like beautiful things. Think about all the work. Anybody been to the Sistine Chapel ever? Oh, wow, a lot of people here. Okay, that's a lot of work, right? It costs a lot to fly to Rome. You get in the airport, you've got to fight with the Italian cab drivers. You never know where they're going to take you to Venice first on the way to Rome. And then you have to wait on a long line, and you get only so many minutes, and you go up there, and you see it, and then you go home. Right? Thousands of dollars out of your bank account for that. What was it that moved your will to open your wallet for that? It was the beauty of the Sistine Chapel. And so... Uh, it, we're made to delight in the beautiful, and we uh, know it, and we love it. So this is the most tedious slide of the whole night. So see if you can like, rally your caffeination here for a second. He said there are three elements, essential elements of a beautiful thing. Integritas, which means wholeness or completeness. Consonantia, which means due proportion, either in itself or in relation to an end. So for instance, is a, is a gold toilet seat proportional to its and I didn't plan that, I promise you. I just thought of that just at this moment. I'm sorry. But is a gold toilet seat proportional to its use? No, right? It's ridiculous, right? You shouldn't do that. So there's a proportionality between material and what it's used for. How about a gold chalice? Yeah, you see, the body and blood of Christ has an ontological dignity, and therefore the way we mark it is by using stuff of the earth that indicates that. So that's a proportionality between the thing and its uh, reality. 
And then claritas is this radiant clarity of being. It's the power of a thing to reveal its ontological secret. This is that which we know about it to be true, but that we uh, have to encounter. And uh, Thomas says that if you get two out of three of these, it's pleasant. But if you get three out of three of these, it's beautiful. So here's a question. How do you analyze God in relation to these things? Does God have integritas, completeness? Yes. Does God have proportionality? You know, the father doesn't say, oh, you're the son, go take out the garbage, right? He says, son, I've given you myself completely, right? And the love of this, who is the spirit between the father and the son, perfect relationship to each other. And then there's this perfect revelation of the relationship of father and son and spirit. So God has this perfect beauty. Was the crucifixion beautiful? Or was it divine child abuse, as some people say? It didn't look too pretty, right? What kind of God would send his son to be nailed to a cross? Obviously didn't love him too much, right? The son went willingly, so that helps. Love. Right, because God loved, so loved the world that he sent his only son, not to show up as the king, right, but to show up as the weakest of the weak, to suffer and die, because no greater love uh, is there than to lay down your life for your friends. So the crucifixion is not beautiful in earthly terms, but it's the most beautiful once you understand its ontology. And so here's the famous Grunewald uh, crucifixion which was actually in a chapel of a hospital for people who had skin diseases, which is why Christ's skin is shown as all uh, torn. And so most people would say this is not a beautiful image until you realize this is God becoming man, giving up the, the, um, the dignity of uh, God, godness in a sense, and becoming the weakest and the lowest of men. So this is the phrase in Latin that Thomas Aquinas came up with that everybody uses wrong. This is beautiful are called things which, when seen, please. Okay, it's weird Latin, but that's the literal thing. So that implies being. There are things which, and they're seen, which means they're perceived in the mind, and then they have uh, some kind of reaction in us. We are pleased in looking at them. So beautiful things are an experience of the good. They reveal this supernatural reality, this knowledge in the mind of God. And to do this, they can't lack anything. So beauty is that which pleases upon being seen is the same as beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Oh, see, this is the bad translation of this thing from Thomas. Because if you're pleased, because you're properly formed, you're pleased when you understand things as God understands them. That means the thing is good, and it's right, and it's proportional to God's understanding. If you say, well, I've been reading Kant, and I really believe that it's all my subjective response, and my emotional response is what beauty is. I had the good fortune to discover something on my iPad, an app called Crackle. Has anybody heard of this? You can watch free TV, so I've been watching reruns of Bewitched at night. <laughs> and when you click Bewitched, you get this commercial for Mountain Dew, and there's some rappers driving, riding around on a skateboard, and he says, music to me is doing whatever I feel like in the moment. That's what music is. That's not the same as beauty is that which pleases upon being seen. We live in a world that doesn't understand a lot of these things. So, tell me, a gazelle with no legs. Beautiful? Which one of these three things is it lacking there on the right? It's incomplete, right? There's an integritas problem. A slug with no legs. Yeah, see, a slug's not supposed to have legs, so it's not missing anything, right? So that's why ontology matters. A church without an altar? That's an integritas problem. A musical setting of Herbs Beata Jerusalem, which is about the heavenly city of Jerusalem, 
uh, which is chaotic and discordant. Right, how come? But that's what, all the, that's what all the hip musicians are doing, man. If you want to be Catholic, if you want to be relevant to this culture, you better do what the culture's doing. Well, it lacks claritas because it's not revealing the nature of heaven. And it lacks consonancia because it's not proportionate to the order and beauty of heaven. And it's lacking consonants, so therefore it's got an integritas problem too. Uh, how about a well-designed racist propaganda poster? You hire the best graphic designer in the world and you say, make me a racist poster that's so beautiful everybody wants to be a racist. <laughs> I mean, right? The Nazis did this, right? They hired the best artists, the best filmmakers, the best architects. What's the problem? It's a claritas problem, right? Because it's lacking the truth, right? Even though it might be appealing. Remember, two out of the three are pleasant, three out of the three are beautiful. Or a church that looks like an exquisite ski lodge or airplane hangar. <laughs> well, people say, I go in there, it's a nice building. It's like a nice, it's like when I went to Vail last year, right? And I went skiing. You can like a ski lodge, but you have to ask, is that the ontology of church, right? So there's a problem there, and it's integritas and consonancia. And a catchy, well-composed hymn to the devil at Mass. Ooh, right? What's wrong with that? It's what everyone's doing. I mean, what if the culture said, that's what we do now, right? This is what all the liturgical intelligentsia tell you. What's, how could you defend that, your position, intellectually? It's not proportionate, right? Because the devil does not deserve a hymn of praise. It doesn't reveal the nature of heaven, right? And it's incomplete because it's leaving out God. So you have all these ways to do this. This is, I mean, this is high Thomistic theology. But you see how it's not that complicated, really? Okay, there is a, a theologian, a Thomistic theologian, uh, Jacques Maritain, that says, beautiful, in beautiful things, the mind is spared the least effort of abstraction and rejoices without labor. It's excused its customary task, and DMAC is my nickname, Dennis McNamara. So DMAC says, the reality of the object is so clearly, completely, and properly evident that we don't have to ask, what the heck is it? <laughs> when I, anybody, any New Yorkers here moved to... Do you remember a TV show called Wonderama that was on on Sunday morning? This guy named Bob McAllister. It was like a kid's show. And they would show you this thing like a vegetable steamer. And they would say, what the heck is it? And it would fly around. And then the kids would win prizes if they could tell what it was. But that's because they didn't know what it was. But if you've seen enough cats, you know what cats are. Even if you see a cat you've never seen before. If you've never seen a Procyon Lotor, for instance, you might not know what it is. You have to think of all the times you've seen it and say, hmm, this fits into this category. I'm abstracting out raccoonness from all the raccoons I've seen. And then you figure out if it's a good one or not. And so if it's so clear that you don't have to say, hmm, it says church on the sign, but it looks like a pizza hut, and I don't know if churches look like this, then you know that you're seeing something uh, beautiful. Oh, there it is, a church that looks like a pizza hut. How about a hymn to me at Mass, right? That's not, you'd say, why are they, is that, is that guy God? I mean, he's got a nice tie, but really, is, is that God? Right, I don't know. Tantum ergo, tantum ergo, sacramentum, da 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 It's just a different melody, what's the problem? The melody is not proportionate to the dignity of the text. You see, that's a consonancia problem. And so on. Uh, how about saying, ah, we won't sing the creed at Mass, let's sing Onward Christian Soldiers instead. It's a good song. Nothing wrong with it. Is Onward Christian Soldiers a text of the Mass? No, right? So that's why the texts of the Mass are primary, because what you're celebrating is the Mass itself. 
Okay, so to be is to be beautiful. So everything is equally beautiful and a slug is equal to a person. No. Let's see what we can do with that. A thing is most beautiful in direct proportion to its perfection in being. Again, this is high Thomistic theology. Who has perfection of being? That is, is being itself. Right. And everything that God created also participates in being, but at a lesser degree. So you can think of this in uh, different ways. Which of all creatures has the highest potential for perfection in being? Right. Hu human beings, right? And that's, there's a, in the old, uh, well, you compare an ant, a rock, a dog, a person, a cow, a daffodil. They each have a proper dignity, but they're not equatable. If you uh, read these old books on Thomistic theology, they would talk about these charts of the powers, the powers of man. And you can see we have vegetative powers and nutrition and growth and reproduction and then appetitive and knowing and then rational powers of intellect and will. You know, things that a daffodil doesn't have, for instance. And so we're at the top of this hierarchy, which is not very popular, strangely enough, to talk about uh, being at the top of the hierarchy of creatures because we're destroying the rainforests and all of that. But this is objectively true, whether we do it or uh, not. Okay, so what is the ontology of the sacred liturgy? And therefore, liturgical architecture. What's the nature of the liturgy itself? Well, grace... Yeah. Sacrifice of Christ, heavenly liturgy. There's a lot of things in there. It's a very complicated sort of thing. Let's see what we can say here. Vatican II tells us that the liturgy and its art should be signs and symbols of heavenly realities and a foretaste of the heavenly liturgy. So it's a sacrament of heaven. And we're used to thinking of the seven sacraments, right? You have the seven the church has. But in the wider thing, you can think of a small s sacrament as being any material stuff that makes knowable to the mind, to the senses, something that would be otherwise unknowable. So like that statue of an angel, otherwise unknowable. In the East, I don't know if the Melkites do it, but you talk about icons as sacraments. Sometimes you hear that in the Eastern church, icons are sacraments because they make the saint uh, knowable. So what is heaven like, ordered or chaotic? Ordered. Centered on God or centered on me? God, yes, good thing too. Radiant or obscure? Radiant. What's it radiant with? The light of God, right, the light of Christ. That's one of the old tricks as you go and tell the young theologian, tell, tell me what the church looks like in heaven, or tell me, is there a sun or a moon in heaven? Anybody read the book of Revelation lately? No sun, no moon in heaven, because the light of Christ is its light. Is it intelligible or confusing? You sure hope so. Empty or populated? Populated. Populated with what? Who? Saints? Angels? The Trinity itself, right? On the edge of heaven are the souls in purgatory waiting to enter more fully. And so think about a church building now. It should be ordered. It should be centered on God. It should be radiant. It should be intelligible, and it should be populated. So how do you make a church populated? Well, you show up, for one thing, right? And then who do you meet there? Angels, saints, the Trinity. You can sit in your room alone and say, boy, I wish I could see God. I wish I could see an angel. I wish I could see a saint. Or you can go to a really well-appointed church, and sacramentally presented to you will be an angel, a saint, and the Trinity, and a statue, and a stained glass window, and a mural, whatever it happens uh, to be. Is heaven lacking, or has all that's necessary? Yeah, I know, it's, this is getting a little tedious here, but you get it, right? This is how you determine if an architecture, a way of building architecture is a good way to do things. There's an architect named Frank Gehry. Have you heard of him lately? 
He's at the center of the um, Eisenhower Memorial uh, thing going on in, in D.C. And I read a thing by him, and he said in writing that, you know, the world is a pretty messed up place. You try to build a grid on the land, and then you try to have laws, and you don't want people to rob or murder or rape, and they still do it all anyway. And so the only thing we know for sure is that we're bound to chaos. And so he takes a piece of paper or whatever, throws it in the corner, and tells his architect staff, go make a building out of that. And they use very complicated um, computer software to make these buildings so they don't fall over or blow away in the wind. But he is really famous, and he gets millions and millions and millions of dollars, and every city that wants to be a city on the world stage has to have a Frank Gehry building. So what if someone said, we've hired Frank Gehry, you're on the church building committee, what do you say? Hey, but he's famous. If you build this Frank Gehry church, architects will come from around the world to visit your church. They won't pray, but they'll look at it. What's wrong with that? He's famous. What's wrong with the idea of the architectural built form of being bound to chaos? Are we bound to chaos? Well, we're fallen. But we're also redeemed, right? And in a life of grace, we can overcome the conditions of the fall. And so to build architecture that embodies the fall and despair and being unredeemed and subject to chaos and sin and death is to build a kind of architecture that's not a Catholic architecture. Guess who was one of the three finalists in the year 2000 for the Church of the New Millennium by the Archdiocese of Rome? Frank Gehry. He did not win, but he was one of the three finalists because they thought, oh, famous architect, we want to show how relevant we are. We have to build a church by a guy like that. Okay. So how do you know what heaven is like and therefore what the liturgy should be like? Start with the Bible. Chapter 4, chapter 20, chapter 21, these are, you know, Catholics don't really have, like, Bible verses ready to go at their fingertips anytime. When my Baptist friends say, they think they're tricking me, and they say, what's your favorite verse of the Bible? I could say, well, Revelation chapter 4, right? What does heaven look like? There's a throne, there's one seated on the throne, there's a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Think of rainbow as a symbol of right relationship between God and man again, the rainbow that landed there on Noah's Ark. There's white-robed elders with golden crowns, and then these funny-looking creatures, the lion and the eagle and the ox. These are the four evangelists. And then who else is there? Everybody in this great multitude that nobody could count. So heaven is filled with these things. The next time you go into a church that's filled with these things, you can either say, oh, that reminds me of when the nun hit me with a stick. Or you can say, that's a church before the, the bland churches of the 70s. Or you can say, this is beautiful because it's mediating the ontology of heaven to me. See how much smarter that is? When you go to some cocktail party tomorrow or whatever and you're holding your, co- your uh, martini, just say, I learned the word ontology yesterday. And don't you know, the ontology of this martini is perfect. <laughs> the consonancia of the vermouth to the gin is just right, right? And so the claritas of martini is really radiating through the, this drink. But if you can talk about martinis that way, think about how you can talk about uh, churches that way. Uh, is it good time for a break? Okay, we're going to take a little break. and um, Thank you very much for your first part of your presentation. So please welcome back Dr. Dennis McNamara. All right. Well, I'm glad you stayed. You know, this is, this is a lot to ask of people to sit for, for two hours on a nice sunny Sunday. But uh, I appreciate that, that you're here. You know, I hope that one thing you can see is that when you start talking about ontology, notice the word I haven't used yet is style. Style is a set of facts. 
it was this kind of architecture and this kind of place and this time and has round arches or pointed arches and it looks like this and has this proportions. That's interesting. But the truth is, is this building a sacramental revealer of the heavenly Jerusalem? And so you can praise God in German or French or Spanish or Chinese or whatever you know. German has this forceful language and French has this, you know, kind of uh, smooth quality to it and Italian has this kind of emphasis to it, you know. So sometimes poems work only in their own language, but they're all still praising God and that's okay. When you start hanging around the question of ontology, we're not talking about old, modern, this, that. We're talking about does this thing manifest what we need it to manifest, which is the glory of the heavenly reality, which is so attractive and compelling that it moves my will to go there and do that. And that's what we're about. It's being sanctified, glorified, being made more like God. And so architecture is not an art history trick. It's not just the thing that rich people build because they can afford it. It's about how do people come to know the nature of God and therefore become like God. And when you're like God, then you're ready to be with God for eternity. And that's what our whole mission on earth is, is about. A little more in the book of Revelation here, chapter uh, 21. This is every architect's uh, dream, right? A church architect's dream. He gets a tour of heaven. This is St. John. He's on the island of Patmos, and he says there's a tear in the heavens. And the, the angel had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And the city is square, and its length and its width and its height are equal. So what's the shape of heaven? It's a cube, right? So it's a big cube floating in the sky. This is not, it's also the bride, right? It's a very weird shape for a bride, um, big cube. <laughs> But look what the bride is made of. Gems, jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, and so on, and pearls. So the next time you go into a church that's got stained glass windows that makes the building look like it's made of jewels, and then those jewels form the shapes of little people, and heaven is made of us, the living stones. But not the living stones as we exist here, but the living stones as will exist when we are glorified and radiant and perfected. Then you start to say, oh, the church building is an image of the mystical body of Christ made up of us, the many members, who are glorified and divinized to be like God and celebrating the wedding feast of the Lamb for eternity. So it's a festive architecture. And you see there's a lot that goes on here. This is not just how many people can we seat and how, much, uh, how many fire exits do we need. You know, those are important. But that's not what the sacramentality of a church is. So when you start running around the art history books and you see some of these buildings, you have images of the walls of the heavenly Jerusalem. You have the heavenly beings. You have this proportionality between the mural or the mosaic and the reality that uh, pre-exists it. And then there's this clarity. There's this revelation about the nature of, of heaven. There are lots of ways to do it. This is a church from 1930 or so in uh, Cincinnati. The gold background traditionally represents this kind of radiant, light-filled place that doesn't look like any real place on earth. And you see palm trees, which represent the new earth of paradise, the trinity at the center, the angels and the saints. You may not be able to see it, but the cross here has water flowing from it, and the water is flowing down to nourish the earth. So the desert of the earth, which is this place after the fall, is not filled and completely restored yet, is becoming fertile through the, the grace of the Holy Spirit coming down to make a garden again. And if you've ever been to the Holy Land, you see you drive from Jerusalem through the desert, you wind up at the Sea of Galilee, and there are orange trees and waterfalls and fountains. The desert and the, and the um, garden are two biblical images that show up in church illustration as well. So here is St. John's uh, Abbey Church in Collegeville, Minnesota, probably well, the most famous American church of what they call the heroic modern period. Concrete and uh, very, very large and very big. 
Now, some people say, oh, I'm an architect and, you know, concrete is my favorite material because I was indoctrinated that way and that's what the 20th century is about and we're in the age of industry and our materials are industrial. The only way for architecture to be true to its age is to take the materials of its age, which are the materials of the engineer, right? Glass, steel, uh, concrete. So, how would you assess if this is a beautiful church or not? Now, don't, don't just have a gut reaction. Have an intellectual reaction. Because you get gut reactions on both ways, right? Some people say that's horrible. Some people say, oh, it's, it's Marcel Breuer. It's the 20th century. It's, it's, it's the perfect example of its age. And it is, really. I mean, this is a big Marcel Breuer church, right? This is what Marcel Breuer was about. This is what he did. And he did it really well. The question is, is it a good church? Yeah, you don't know. I heard you don't know. Something about the heavenly realities. These are little uh, communion stations. They're like little segments of a communion rail. Does it look important? It's big, right? It's not easy to build this thing. Even though it's concrete, it's huge, right? And they spend a lot of money on it. Is a church building important? So does it participate in churchness to some degree? Yeah, it's big. It's important. It's significant. They spend a lot of money on it. It's very... um, in that way, it indicates its dignity to a certain degree. But then if you start getting closer and closer, could this be exchanged for uh, an airplane car wash in about five minutes? Yeah. You ever see those car, airplane car washes at the airport? They run the planes through them and they clean them. Hey, you know, it's got an altar. It's, this is a, a hanging uh, thing called a tester. Originally, Marcel Bory wanted to be covered in gold leaf on the ceiling, which they never did. And that really would have made it have more of a, a correspondence with the heavenly realities. So when you talk about ontology, it doesn't rule out this kind of thing. It doesn't mean always 19th century Gothic revival. It doesn't mean it can't be 20th century. The question is, is it ontologically what it's supposed to be? Uh, This is from a little article in the Liturgical Arts Magazine, which is the leading liturgical arts magazine of the 20th century. And this was somebody's house, and they turned it into a church, and they said it was the small church of the future where stylistic triumphalism of the past would give way to a more sensible and humane solution. So, what is a church? Is it a house? Well, Calvin thought it was, right? They said the apostles broke bread in their homes, so therefore churches should be houses. Is that an ontological reality of church? You could use the Bible to argue for it. Mm. Is it a factory? Is it a house? Is it an image of heaven? If you want to know what happened in the early 70s, read the magazines and they'll say, you know, those big basilicas we used to have, that was what Constantine the emperor dumped all this imperial court ritual on the house church. And really, churches are houses. The altar is the dining room table of God. And people gather around the table. The priest uh, looks at his people and serves them meal when you're, you know, um, clean the vessels, you're doing the dishes. This is what they used to say in the seminaries. Well, if your ontology of church is house, then what are you going to make it look like? A big house. What are the floors going to be made of? Wood. What are the walls going to be made of? Drywall. Murals on the wall? Probably not, because you don't have those in your houses. And then when it's so empty, you have to buy lots of palm trees and put them in the back of the sanctuary, and then they die. Why not have the murals of the heavenly uh, and the earthly united new earth instead of just the church as house? This is where ontology matters. People were not stupid, right? Architects were told this is what you should do. They did what they were told the ontology of a church was. But you have to know what the ontology is. Is this a beautiful church? Well, this is a church not yet built, but it will hopefully be built in the next year or two. 
If I didn't tell you it was a church, would you think it was a church? How come? You're so narrow-minded, all of you. Don't you know the Renaissance ended 500 years ago? Don't you know the Eucharistic prayer was written 1,000 years ago? Right? See, that which is true is always true. And that which is not true is never true. So uh, how would you know if this is beautiful or not? Thinking of the, the discussions we've had before, does this seem to have everything it needs to have to be what a church needs to be? On the outside, anyway. It's um, marble on the front or stone on the front. Does that seem proportionate to the dignity of a church? Right. Does it ring true to you? Churchness radiate out from this? On the right, that's a, a campanile or a bell, a bell tower with a cross on top. It just so happens that this was designed by James McCreary, who's an architect in Washington, D.C. You may have seen some of his work uh, for the Mystic Monk Coffee Monks, their big Gothic uh, monastery they wanted to build, or he was hired recently to design the new cathedral for the Diocese of Raleigh. It'll embarrass him terribly to, if I tell you he's sitting in the back over there, but uh, he's sitting over there by the camera, so... Yeah! And talk, if he's still around at the end, talk to him later, because he was trained as a wild deconstructionist and then had a conversion, and if you want to build a church, talk to him too, because he can design you a nice one. <laughs> And I'm not getting any kickback. Even though I'm from Chicago, I'm not getting any kickback. Okay, is this a beautiful altar? And what is the process in your mind? It, okay. <laughs> I got a yes, I got a I don't like it. But let's think. Does it seem to be made, it's several different kinds of marble. Does it seem to be made of the things an altar needs to be made of to be dignified as an altar? Yeah. Well, what's an altar, ontologically speaking? It's a table, it's a place of sacrifice, it's a table, it's an altar, and traditionally it was also represented as a tomb uh, because of the tradition of the early Christians saying Mass on the catac- in the catacombs on the um, sarcophagi down there. So this has legs like a table, it has a big stone slab like an altar, and then it has these infill panels to enclose it like it's a tomb. So it does all of those things all at once. In the 50s, they used to talk about the altar also being a throne, that it was Christ the King who reigned from the altar. It was also the place of prophecy because it's the table of the Last Supper, and then uh, the victim because it's the place where he's offered to the Father. You see priest, prophet, and king. They all kind of land here. Now, whether those particular colors and all those patterns, if it's too busy, you know, that's a, that's a separate question, but it's sort of into the on, general ontological category. How about this one? This won a prize from Ministry and Liturgy magazine in the early 2000s. And what they said was, this is in a church in Florida, that's actually stone that's carved to look unfinished. And they said, we're the mystical body of Christ, and we're broken, and we're sick, and we die, and so the altar should reflect us, and so therefore we made this look like it was broken. I got a thumbs down over there, but what's the intellectual critique? Because architects will come up with any theory they can whiz-bang you with to make you buy their thing. So you have to have an answer. The altar is Christ. Is Christ broken and incomplete? No. Is, does this have a consonance with Christness? No, there's a proportionality problem there, right? And so this is the way you can think through things. And you can argue, okay, well, we're the mystical body. We're not yet at our full eschatological glory as we will at the end of time. And so then you can talk about it. But if you say, I don't like it, well, that's like the co- arguing about your favorite color. But once you know, then you can have intellectual discourse. Is this a beautiful altar? Where's the altar? Yeah, this is the altar. 
Is it a beautiful altar? Or is it a really beautiful altar piece? Because in the, the altar is pretty nice too, yeah. But if you, what's the first thing your eye went to? The altar or all this stuff? Oh, yes, see, in the 40s and 50s, people were really tough on this kind of architecture because the altar is the primary thing in the church. And they said this, was, this turned the altar into a shelf for architectural virtuosity, right? And they would only have half an altar, right? And because it was only half an altar, you had to build the tabernacle into the background, and then it couldn't be veiled all the way around like the canon law required. And so when they renovated St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City, it had an altar like this. It wasn't this one, but it's very similar. They took down this big high altar, and they built this so that the altar could be freestanding, that it would be uh, something you could go all the way around. It would have the cross and the candlesticks be prominent, unlike here where they sort of blend into the background. But then it also got this beautiful canopy. And so there was a hatred of Victorian altarpieces even before the 1970s. But what they replaced them with then was something more dignified. It hadn't yet become church as house. So you see, it's a subtle thing to think about uh, beauty, but you have to know what's the ontology of altar. Okay, here's a music exercise. Is this a proper text for singing? Glory to Justin Bieber in the highest and death to God's people on earth. No, right? It's not true. It's not proportionate. I feel really sad today. My wife left me and the house burned down. That's not a bad thing to sing the blues, right? Coffee and cigarettes in Chicago, but not liturgical, right? The ontology of liturgy is not well represented there. Look beyond the bread you eat to see your Savior and your Lord. You know this song? Look beyond the bread you What's wrong with that? Yeah, look at the bread, that thing formerly known as bread that is now your body of Christ, right? So if you think this is merely a sign that refers you to Jesus up in heaven, like it's good Protestant theology. It's not good Catholic theology. Look at the, the former bread you eat. We are called, we are chosen, we are Christ for one another. Are we called? Are we chosen? Do we act as Christ for one another? Yeah, right. We're all little Christ, right? We're supposed to take care of the sick and help the poor and all of that. Is this a good liturgical song? Is it a good devotional song? Ah, see, most people sing devotional music at Mass. They don't sing the text of the Mass themselves. And so it's important to know your ontological categories. A proper form for setting the music... Um, Glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. Right? Gregorian chant, for instance, starts with a text and makes notes that fit the text. They don't cram text into, um, into the um, notes. So maybe you know the Regina Celli. Most people know the Roman one, which is shorter. Regina Celli, Letare, Alleluia. That's kind of the shorter version. The Dominican one goes like this. Regina Celli. Okay, so lots of notes, right? And look, quia, who merited to bear, right? Quia quia meruisti portare. That's a lot of portare, which means to carry. Why so many notes on portare? Mary was bearing Christ, right? Mary, you were worthy to carry Christ. Mary, I'm so excited you were, wear, you were worthy to bear Christ. Or, oh, 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 right? You see that correspondence. The text, the nature of the text is clarified by the number of notes that are put on the words that are more important or less important. There's a relationship that's consonant, that's proportional. 
sometimes they talk about the holy stutter. In, um, in Judaism, if you said things three times, that was like saying the most, right? Holy, holy, holy was like holiest. They didn't have that eest part. How is this related to beauty? Well, it makes the ontology more clear. I think it's almost time for Noel to come be our, our volunteer. She's a, a bit mortified, but I asked her if she'd come be a volunteer. If you've ever been to a Messiah sing-in, and maybe you have the disc of Handel's Messiah, there's this air for tenor called, Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill made low, the crooked straight and the rough places plain. This is all about order being given to the world. So I'm going to sing a little bit of this, and uh, Noelle's going to pantomime with her hands. When the notes go up, she'll go up. Could you come over a little bit this way so the camera can see you? Okay. So here we go. And every mountain and hill made low, the crooked straight, and the rough places played. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much. Okay. Notice there's a correspondence. Uh, usually I have them do this on a chalkboard, but we don't have a chalkboard here. So. And uh, if you know more of the music, um, it really builds this way. It shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill made low. The crooked straight and the rough places play. Can you just imagine your hand going across the, the geography of America, right? The Rocky Mountains and the plains and so on. There's a correspondence between the words and the notes. This is called text painting. It's very common in Baroque music. And this is just another way to make the meaning of the text more obvious, which is a way to make it more beautiful because it's more um, penetrating. Okay, on the right, the beautiful statue of the Virgin Mary and Child. It's bronze, and it's in the narthex of a new church for the, the front. How do you know it's the Virgin Mary? What if I told you this is from the Pioneer Frontier Museum and they just got out of the Conestoga wagon? All right, yeah, right. You see, if you don't have enough integritas, right, completeness, then it's hard to know what it is. It's not proportional. How about on the left there? Good old Mother Teresa helping children. Is this uh, Mother Teresa in heaven or Mother Teresa on earth? Yeah, that's okay. Remembering Remembering Mother Teresa's earthly activity is a good thing. But you couldn't properly call this a liturgical image because it's not Mother Teresa participating in the heavenly liturgy. It's a historical image of Mother Teresa doing what Mother Teresa did, which is a good thing. But you see, ontological categories can become quite subtle. How about this? Ever seen a guy who looks like this? If you do, run the other way, right? <laughs> Big, giant head, perfect beard, long, long fingers, green and orange robe. Why does, why does that kind of tradition make people that don't look like the people looked when they were on earth? Because they're in heaven, yes. And there's a high theology of iconography that distorts the facts to make the truth more evident. That's another one of your cocktail party things. I distorted the facts to make the truth more evident, right? <laughs> Think about poetry. If you had a great story of proposing to your wife or something and, and you wrote her a mushy letter, you know, Dear Jane, when you agreed to marry me, I was a gazelle leaping across the stars, jumping from Ju- you know, Jupiter to Saturn, and I saw the stars twinkling in your eyes. Is any of that factually accurate? No. But just, I would never a gazelle. Don't leap across the planets. There's no stars in your eyes. But the distortion of the facts makes the truth of the joy more evident, and that's what poetry does. 
poetry makes the facts distorted. And so if you live in a time where only they like literal technical writing kind of stuff, then the poetry goes away. Right. And so if you say, well, the premier building of all time is the factory because that's the only true building of an industrial age and therefore a church is a machine for praying in, well, suddenly you've sort of given up the poetry, or the, at least part of the potential for poetry. How about these icons? I saw this one on the right, someone on eBay. $1,800 somebody wants for that. Now they're trying to do the iconic tradition, but what? Yeah, they're not too good at it yet, right? And spelling, grammar, we have conventions, and we do them the way the conventions are established. And if you don't, then you're either breaking the convention, and you have to be really good to do that, or you're not that good yet, right? And so artistic things don't only have to be theological, but they have to be beautifully executed. How about this? People like these. The tapestries at the New Cathedral in Los Angeles. Various saints marching down the side walls of the cathedral. Beautiful or not? I got some, yeah, a lot more yeses and one not. Well, let me tell you this. The artist who made these said that he walked around Los Angeles and he found people who looked like he thought should be represented in the church. He took their picture and he made them look just like that. So you see these people kind of look like they're people dressed up in costumes. And this, I always thought this guy here looked like Oscar from The Office. I don't know if you watched The Office, but there he is. He said, I wanted them to look like real people because saints are so far away. You know, we want, we're going to be saints someday, so I want them to look like regular people on this earth. And notice it doesn't say Saint Bernard. It just says Bernard. It doesn't say Saint Augustine. It doesn't say Saint John the Baptist. What's the problem? It's kind of pleasant to look at, but they're not presenting them in their heavenly condition, right? And so that is an ontological problem. If you want to say this is the history of the life of these saints, great. But they're not presented in their liturgical condition. This is where the great theology of the East is so helpful for us Westerners. Okay, and we'll just finish up with a little bit of natural theology because you can say, oh, Scripture, it's been interpreted 500 ways. How do you know this? I'm not the king of France. How can I build a church like that? Well, simple stuff. Anybody ever have a biology book in high school with that shell on it? I think every biology book in the history of the world has the Nautilus shell on it. Well, one of the things that's just a handy little fun thing is called the divine proportion. This is from the Da Vinci Code, if you read that. The divine proportion was some sort of plot, you know, by the, the Illuminati or whatever it was. And there's this numerical ratio of 1 to 0.618034. It's one of those numbers that actually goes on forever. And it has a, a, a numerical um, derivation as well. But if you think about consonantia, one of the three constituent elements of beauty, proportionality, you can have proportions that are bizarre, a la Frankenstein, right? Frankenstein has everything except for the bolts that you and I have, right? Big eyes, green skin, right? That's a proportionality problem. So Frankenstein is basically a person monstrously put together, which means his consonantia is wrong. And so proportion matters. And we have something about us that can reveal the mind of God. And this number, this golden section, uh, is actually a section of a circle. So if you, my little red light's not working here. If you took this circle and put it all the way around here, it'd be this little section here. And the way you figure it out is you take a square, you divide it in half, you take the diagonal, and then with a compass you draw down there and you get this ratio here. So this would be some number, and this would be 61.8% of it, roughly. So this would be x, and this would be 0.618x. But the cool thing about this is if you take this 0.618 and make it your new one, 
and do that, it becomes a self-repeating spiral, and that's the shell that you've had on your biology book, and it goes on you know, infinitely. And so here's this numerical system that seems to work in nature. And there you see the biology book, and then the uh, way it's derived. And you can see these all over the place. A rose petal unfurls in this spiral. The bottom of a pine cone, this is the center of a daisy, which is actually two of these spirals in opposite directions uh, going that way. Or next time you have cauliflower, take a look. This is the top of a sunflower. So this is the bud, and these are the leaves coming out. And they don't just grow exponentially larger. They grow in this proportion that fits this, the human ear, the galaxy, the Milky Way. This is somebody's attempt to time the stock market. And so it goes up, it goes down. And Visa really wants you to use their credit card, so they want it to look nice, just the right proportions for you to enjoy. But look what happens if you take this and make it into a building. This is the Parthenon in Greece. And so you have the square, which is the 1, and then this is 0.618 and added to that. And then when you go up this way, here's the 1, and here's the 0.618 add to that. And then you get the line of what's called the entablature. And then it, it comes down into even these little parts here. So you could say, I'm going to pick any old number because that's the size of standard length steel comes from. And when I go to Home Depot, that's the, the length they give me. Or you can say, hmm. God ordained certain number patterns in the world that I can find by looking at nature and then make buildings that are consonant with, with that. Okay, here's this lady. Is she beautiful? Eh, I don't know. You know, nobody knows. She's intriguing, but she wouldn't be on the cover of Glamour any day these days. Well, guess what? She fits into this whole golden section uh, deal here, too which is partly because that's what human bodies do, but it's also partly because the painter wants, Leonardo da Vinci wants to represent the Mona Lisa perfected, not just as she existed in real life, but perfected. And he took it even another level. Oh, well, there she is. She's got the same thing as the Parthenon. You remember, is it, our, is it My Fair Lady? Uh, no, there's some, some movie with Catherine Hepburn, and uh, not Catherine Hepburn, the Audrey Hepburn, and they say, your face looks like a tree. And she says, what? And he measures her face, and she's got the same proportions as the five-sided um, maple leaf. And so, well, she's not a tree, but she's sharing that same numerical underpinning. Well, what do the numerical underpinnings of God say? Three and one, right? One thing made of three equal parts. Can you think of any geometrical figure that's one thing made of three equal parts? Right, an equilateral triangle. So if you're going to paint a picture of the Trinity, why not use that as your uh, guiding principle? So there are ways to make things that correspond to nature. Here's that spiral on the Mona Lisa's face. And then here uh, is another painting that was um, painted by a, a New York painter named Leonard Porter, who was also trained as an abstract expressionist. He said when he was in graduate school, his teachers told him to try painting with his feet just to see what would happen, right? And so he had all these paintings of blotches on the, on the wall. And he said, well, those represented my emotional conditions at the moment. And people came in and they said, hmm, you know, brie and grapes and wine. Oh, look at his emotional condition. Okay, next. Oh, look at his emotional condition. This is blue period. Oh, yeah, okay. But ultimately, he said, so what? Who cares? And he said it was so easy to do that because nobody knew how to evaluate it. You paint a person, their head better be proportional to a human head, and their hands better be in the right place, and their legs better be right. And so this one is called St. Dominic and the Eighth Way of Prayer. 
this is St. Dominic at his canonization uh, hearings, they found that there were nine different ways that he prayed. And he's standing and kneeling and genuflecting. And one of them was he'd go into his room alone and pray with the scriptures. And then an angel would show up and talk to him and bring him the waters of wisdom, which is this little jar right here. Because here's the angel about to tap him on the shoulder and bring him the waters of wisdom. Colors are nice. It's very traditional. This is 2005. This is painted. But look at the geometric underpinning of it. It's not arbitrary that this is a square right here, and then this part up here is going off the screen is about half the height of that square. And then this circle that fills in the arch above, notice the, the fabric of the angel's blue uh, gown follows that, comes right down to the hand of Dominic, right around here. And then the diagonal of half the bottom square uh, lands right on Dominic's head and so on. So this is all this invisible proportioning system that becomes the ordering principle for something uh, like this. So we're uh, winding down now. There's just a couple of more slides. But uh, in his letter to artists, uh, John Paul II quoted a, a Polish poet named Cyprian Norwid. And he said, beauty enthuses us for work, and work is to raise us up. And if you think about that word, enthuse, it's from the Greek en, which means to put into, and theos, which is God. So beauty puts God in us and makes us more suited to be with God forever. And so when you're enthusiastic about something, uh, when somebody's enthusiastic, you're filled with the spirit. And there's nothing better we can do. Beauty's at the heart of the faith, but it requires a perception of truth. A false preacher is not doing anybody any favors. So what do you take from all this? You know, this is, I, I know I threw you all in the deep end of the pool here and splash around, but what can we take from this? Beauty is not an, a fancy, uh, worldly overlay of glittery fanciness. That is a false notion of beauty, because if you're attracted to something beautiful or, or glittery, and then it's, tr it's not true, then that's actually demonic, right? When the, de the devil appears as an angel of light and leads you to the falseness. So there's a danger to beauty, because if it's attractive and false, you've got a problem, which is why it has to be done very carefully. It's a flash of understanding which approaches the way God understands. Now, God is love itself, right? God loves us. God didn't say, Adam and Eve, oh, by the way, you ate the fruit of the tree. You're going to have a timeout for the next 10,000 years, right? Go sit there and ponder what you've done and wait for me to come get you. God said, I'm going to send you prophets, and I'm going to send you priests, and I'm going to send you beauty and sacramental theology, and you get to sing the Sanctus in a way that's so beautiful that you can delight in recovering from the effects of the fall. You can see heaven artistically and delight in your recovery from the effects of the fall. This will be so built into you that you will want to pick up those legs and go look at something beautiful because I love you that much and because that's who God is. And I'll share my own divine mind with you. And so it reveals what God desires that we should be, which is restored with divine life. Anything liturgically, if you ever have to make a liturgical decision, here's the question. Does this thing show either heaven or earth perfected, glorified, radiant, eschatologically fulfilled. The eschaton is the end times, right? When we think, oh, the end times, that's angry Jesus with lightning bolts ready to fry us, right? This is what most people think. That's not the case. The end times is good news because that means the effects of the fall will be completely overcome. If you read the book of Revelation, there are these saints under the altar and they're crying out, when, Lord, when, when will the second coming happen? Because they want the people on earth to share in the heavenly glory that they're experiencing. And when you see heaven in a church, architecture, church art, you're experiencing by way of foretaste where you want to be. So the analogy I often use is uh, chocolate chip cookies. When you're a kid, you come off the bus, you open the door, and the living room smells like chocolate chip cookies. Of course, you go run out the door again and go play in the yard. No, what do you do? 
you run to the kitchen, right? And that smell of chocolate chip cookies is the foretaste of full conscious and active participation in chocolate chip cookie, which you get by eating. Now think about all these earthly things. The order, harmony, and uh, God-praising texts. If you're in a choir, and you think the choir is the leader of the sing-along, the choir's job sacramentally is to reveal to the ears the nature of the angels and saints singing around the throne of God. That's the sacramental duty of a choir. If you're an architect and you think, well, we build a living room of God or we build a thing the New York architecture magazines will really like, right? This is a sacrament of the, the heavenly banquet of the Lamb. You can do this with all of the senses because God wants us to delight in this. And it frees us from the effects of the fall. How do you know what heaven is like? As you said, as I said, you could sit in a room and say, boy, I wish I knew what heaven was like. But any golfers in the room? No? Any guitar? Oh, one, one golfer. Okay. I'll put you on the spot. When you learned to play golf, did you sit in a room and say, boy, I wish I could play golf. I wish I could play golf. What would you do? You pick up that uh, well, abysmally ridiculous tool, right? The ball's this big. You have to hit it a quarter mile, and it's far from your hands, right? It's ridiculous. But the only way to be a golfer is to hit the golf ball. How do you become heavenly? You do heaven now, right? In the sacraments, in the music, in the smells of incense, the smells of flowers, the words that praise God. So that when you show up at the pearly gates and you say, Peter, St. Peter says, you ready to be here? Yeah, I've been doing it for the last 85 years. <laughs> I think I'm pretty good. Well, okay, come on in. Well, I've been doing it for the last 85 years, but I, you know, I messed up a few times. Well, hang out in purgatory for a little while, and then you'll be more ready to do it. But you see, this is all not about punishment. This is about delighting in the glory of God that we're all uh, ordained to do. So, this is what I hope you take. Hopefully, I said by the time you left, you would know how to, what beauty was. Correspondence of the ontology with the external um, sacramental manifestation. Take that everywhere you go. Look at everything you see. You'll be ruined forever. You'll never be happy again. <laughs> and that's how it should be, right? You want to be looking toward that heavenly perfection, and you'll be a suffering artist for the rest of your life, hopefully. Uh, knowing that the perfection awaits us. But at the same time, you get to delight in the participation that we get right now on earth because God, whose love itself ordained it, that we should delight in the process of our sanctification. So, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Thank you very much, Doctor, for a wonderful presentation. Thank you. Uh, I have a question but I, I put that in context. You talked about uh, churches, and you talked about churchness, and you talked about distinguish that from houses. Uh, in uh, Beijing, there's a uh, cathedral of uh, Matteo Ricci. It's about as churchness as you can get. The only problem with it is it's a patriotic church. So what goes on there is flawed go outside of that church and there's people sitting in stairwells, you know, bent over so the patriotic church communists can't see what they're doing. And they're leaning over praying. And then they go off to houses somewhere where the priest comes by and they have mass. That doesn't seem to jibe with what you've been saying. Well, sure. I mean, there, there's this question, a um, word called decorum, which comes from the Latin word... Um, to be, to be fitting. So if you're on a battlefield in World War II and you have mass on the back of a truck, that's fitting for that time in that place. 
however, if you're at time and peace and you have architects and finances and you can have a higher and fuller participation in the sacramental reality of the church building, um, then you should. So it's not to say that the church makes the mass, right? The mass ex- can exist without the church building, just as it can exist with, without music and it can exist without flowers and it can exist without a lot of things. But if you want to have a fuller and more complete experience of the ontological fullness or the greater perfection of being, which Thomas Aquinas would say, therefore, more beautiful experience, then you would have all the things you would need to have, and that's the integritas part of beauty, the wholeness or the fullness. Um, you know, if God were missing one of the three persons of the Trinity out of necessity, you'd say, well, God knows what he's doing, but that's not the fullness of God. And so fullness is, your, is where you want to go. If you have too much, that's not good either. Uh, it's like the gold uh, toilet seat. Uh, gilding the lily hides the, the beauty of the lily. And so, but gilding the things that needed to be gilded uh, is appropriate theologically. And that's, that's where I'd um, go with that. Um, if, the, if the church has these guidelines, how come in, like, say, the last 10 years, you can be in the same diocese and one new parish will, will look like a Catholic church with all the amenities that you mentioned, and the other one may look like the theater in the round? We're, who's, who's has the last say in this? Yeah, well, it's a tough and complicated answer that covers the span of several hundred years. <laughs> so it's hard to answer easily. But, you know, there's a... Um, an Eastern theologian of icons named Paul Avdokimov, and he talked about the Eastern churches and how they have a positive theology of art, meaning they, their theology of art and architecture says something. It's a sacrament of the relationship of the God, heaven and earth meeting. He said in the West, we don't really have that. He's, when you look in Vatican II, it says, well, it should express God's beauty in some way, and that statues should be arranged so they don't cause confusion. That's what, the, that's what Vatican II says. That's it. It doesn't say it's a sacrament of heaven or anything. And so the 20th century had a whole bunch of things pulling it in different directions. There was the modernist architecture polemic, which was that architecture, to be true to its age, had to be about whatever was dominant in its age, and they decided that factories and mass production was the dominant feature of the 20th century. So therefore, uh, glass, steel, concrete. Uh, art that was representational was considered sort of not of its age either because the surface couldn't be trusted to reveal the truth, and so you had to break the surface, which is why if you go to some churches, you'll see statues, particularly from the late 50s into the early 70s, they look sort of grotesque. They have this broken surface of big hands, green faces, or all those things that look like tabernacles that look like tree bark, you know what I'm talking about? It's because it's supposed to look broken, which is not good Catholic theology of an anticipated heavenly future. So that's one thing. You have um, bad anthropology, study of the nature of man, bad ecclesiology, when the church is reduced to the gathering of the people in the room at that time, you know, losing its heavenly dimension. You have the cultural influence of modernist architects, and then you have the Catholics who are always afraid they're not good enough in America, right? And so they have to do what the secular intelligence is doing to show that they're relevant. And so there's a whole bunch of things that come together. You have the liturgical establishment saying a church is the living room of God, and therefore it should look like a house. And it was just a perfect storm that just happened in 1970, and we're still, we're still dealing with that. And that's why I keep saying the O word, because if you solve your ontology problem, you solve your architecture problem, and uh, that's the key thing there. Uh, you mentioned the importance of the, of the choirs and the choral music and bringing this all together. Uh, in your contact with architects, is there any 
thought when they build churches to acoustics and the fact that they that the are they totally surrendered themselves to the electronic microphone. Are you a music director by any chance? No, I'm no. just a, I've been an, I'm a singer. Oh, okay. Choir. Yeah, there's a whole lot of bitter music directors out there who hate architects. <laughs> and usually for good reason. But you know what? The architects do what the pastors tell them. And the pastors often don't think of acoustics. They don't think of the theology of resonance. You know, if you sing and then those words echo back to you, or the angels singing that sound back to you, you know, is the echoes in the universe uh, praising God, you know, like the, what they talked about, the, the song of the planets, you know, going around the sun. They each had a pitch and they had a cosmic harmony. People don't think about those things. And also, the spoken word has dominance. So I was working in a church in Kansas City, and they, they brought in the head of the acoustic engineering department at K-State or KU, and he said, you can't have a reverb more than 2.3 seconds, or else you won't be able to understand what the lecture is reading. But they said, well, we have an organ. We want to, no, 2.3 seconds. And you, should, you could imagine what they did to bring that echo down um, precisely to have the spoken word be dominant. We don't want a, such an echoey church that you can't hear the, the, the reading of the scripture. And that's usually where it happens. If you think about the church as an auditorium for the spoken word, then the music stuff tends to get neglected, especially when people think that the choir is the uh, campfire sing-along song leader, which doesn't really matter if it echoes or not. Um, there's really not a place in most people's theology for contemplative listening to music. We think either you sing it or you're not participating, but contemplative listening is a kind of participation that most people don't think about. So it's a very good question. I wish architects and pastors would, would have a little more resonance in churches. Thank you for the uh, filling us in on the theological background. However, uh, looking at it in a more pragmatic uh, manner, if I was a fourth century Christian and I was walking into a basilica, a whole series of which are created by Constantine after basically a typology very common in the Roman Empire of a law court enclosed marketplace, or I go to the Holy Sepulchre and see a concentric set of columns in a circular building which becomes a model again afterwards. <clears throat> and this is before I have Augustine and St. <coughs> Thomas Aquinas giving me these wonderful justifications. Now obviously the basilica has taken a life on its own, but there's a case of, a, of adapting existing forms and infusing them with importance so that something like Santa Maria degli Angeli, which is actually Diocletian's bath uh, building, is actually, in fact, because of its association with, say, the martyrdom of the uh, Egyptian legion, suddenly takes on an importance. So the idea of, you know, the discussion of the means and methods of a given time, now it's, you know, maybe industrial buildings, then it was something else, then it was a basilica. So that, in fact, it was really not just it was a, a known building type which is now adapted and which is now being infused with a meaning, just like even the Acropolis, uh, the Parthenon, became actually a Christian church for many centuries. So obviously there's a concept of architecture, something inherent to it, and to a concept of religiosity, which then is further deepened and, and made richer. Your comment. Well... There is a common misperception that there was no such thing as a basilica before Constantine or before the, Roman, the ancient Romans and that Constantine just dumped it on there. If you were alive in the time of Christ and walking on the Temple Mount, there was a big building called the Royal Stoa, 
which was essentially a big Constantinian basilica 300 years before Constantine, which had three long aisles, columns, it had an apse at one end. And you could pretty certainly bet that the apostles and Jesus walked in this building, right? So there's a big Jewish building on the top of the Temple Mount. On top of that, so it's, it's a building of the time of Christ because, you know, Judea was a client king state of the Roman Empire. So they were trying to show how Roman they could be. But just to say, well, that's their secular building, so we should say, use our secular building, you have to say, is that ontologically appropriate? That's the, that's the primary question. So our secular building is the factory. Their secular building was this law court. Well, you have to think about an early Christian. They said, wow, isn't God good? We have a system of laws that we can use to govern the church. We have a system of roads that the empire made for the armies, but now we can walk it to evangelize the world. We have goldsmithing and gems that they used to adorn the wives of emperors, and now we can use these for chalices. We have mosaics and frescoes that were used to decorate their secular buildings. Now we can use them for churches. And they would say, boy, God provided these seeds of the word in the pagan world, and they provided the seeds in the artistic world. One example is the column, for instance. I didn't spend any time on it today, but a column is not just a pole. This is a pole, right? It has the same width, top, bottom, has no elaboration. It holds up the floor above. But a column in the ancient world, well before Christianity, and in the Old Testament as well, was understood as, a, as an architectural image of a person. Because you know what the top of a column is called? Capital, right? You know that word? Capita, caput, right? It's when you're decapitated, it's off with your head. A column is a head. It has a base from the Greek word basis, which means foot and also means... The, the processional dance of the religious processions. So a column was a person doing a processional dance. And sometimes you see columns that are actually carved into the shape of people. The Porch of the Maidens in Athens is very famous. And so they're more literalized. But look, when you go home, do this. Go to the like, searchable online Bible and put in the word column and see where it comes up. You are God's building. Cephas, James, and John are called pillars of the church. Uh, you have the living stones. You have the temple imagery, the Christ's body is the new temple and we're members of the mystical body. And then um, Moses sets up an altar and he sets up 12 columns to represent the 12 tribes of Israel because they're not there. They're all scattered around. And the column stands in for the tribes. They represent the people of God. And then on top of that, they come in different kinds. There's a Corinthian, Ionic, uh, Doric, and I can't go into all the details, but Doric represented men, Ionic represented mothers, Corinthian represented virginal women, unmarried women. And they said, wow, we have columns that represent people. We have a building that's an image of the mystical body that's made up of living stones who are people, and they come in men, women, unmarried women, and, and married women. Wow, isn't God good, right? And so to say, well, that's the old-fashioned stuff, and now the new column is the I-beam or the concrete pole, is to give up an inheritance of several thousand years just because it seems old-fashioned. And so, is it theologically appropriate? Does it speak theologically? That's the question. And then you say, does the architecture follow it? So that's, that's how I respond to that. Oh, oh no. <laughs> but but you, don't have to, you don't have to use classical architecture. But if you do, it should be done well, and it should be done in a theological way. Oh, thank you. I was... Um Wondering, you're coming at all of this from ontology and architecture schools today. Any of them talk about this, or are they still on? There's one classical program in the world at Notre Dame. Um, Georgia Tech just started a classical or traditional architecture um, sort of sub-major. 
Ohio, uh, no, um, not Ohio State, uh, Miami, University of Miami has one. You may have heard that Prince Charles was really into classical architecture for a while and sponsored a bunch. There's something called the Institute for Classical Architecture in New York that sponsors a lot of these um, things too. And so they're, they're out there. But I would say, I don't know if there are any architects in the room, but 99% of all architecture schools are convinced of what they call the zeitgeist process, which is there's the spirit of the age. And you have to be true to the spirit of the age or you're thwarting the process of cultural evolution. And so if you, know, if you study this philosophically, Hegel said there was a thesis, some idea, that people get tired of that and they propose the opposite and they battle it out and battle it out until they come to some resolution, which is the synthesis. But then the synthesis becomes the new idea. It breeds its opposite and they battle it out and battle it out. And culture goes forward this way. And then he even said that God comes to know himself by how humans, the spirit, mysterious spirit of the age, was not the Holy Spirit, it's some kind of mechanistic spirit, develops cultural evolution. And so, well, you decide the 20th century is about factories, and you try to go behind that and do some traditional stuff, you're not just a guy with a different idea. You are a Philistine sticking a wrench in the gears of cultural evolution. That's why people fight over this stuff. And this is clearly spoken in architecture circles. I mean, people say this, I believe in the zeitgeist, therefore that's not our age, therefore it doesn't belong here. This is the language that's used, and this is the dominant method of 99% of all architectural production these days. There's a, you know, it broke down a little bit here and there in postmodernism, but that's still dominant. Thank you very much, doctor. Okay, thanks. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.